Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our guest is Father Blake Britton. He serves as a parish priest and assistant vocations director in the Diocese of Orlando. He's a regular contributor to the Word on Fire Institute. And he's also the author of a book I just finished, and I wanted to couldn't wait to reach out to him to see if he could talk about it, called Reclaiming Vatican II, What It Really Said, What It Means, and How It Calls Us to Renew the Church. Father, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I'm happy to be with you. So you know, I'm a convert, came into the church in the late 90s, and, you know, there's there's always been kind of a struggle with, you know, not only Vatican II, but how it was interpreted. And it just seems to be getting worse. And I know this book came out and looks like 2021. I I can't believe that this isn't something people need to read because it really does help bring things into perspective and kind of calls things as they are. What What was your impetus to write this? That can be answered in two ways. First was my initial interaction with the Second Vatican Council. As a young man, I had uh, met a wonderful old Irish Monsignor, which I know we've all at least met one of those in our lives. <laughs> and uh, he was actually present at Vatican II. He was one of the secretaries to the participants in the Second Vatican Council. And he just began to regale me with stories about Vatican II itself and, and the, the accomplishments, the sort of uh, interactions that are happening there. And that started me reading off the council documents. So as I started reading the council documents, however, I noticed the disconnect between what I heard often promoted in the quote unquote spirit of Vatican II and what I was actually reading in the documentation itself. And that reoriented my research to ask the question, why is there a discrepancy between what the documents say and what is promoted on the grassroots level? And as I started studying that, I ran across multiple articles and writings by many of the conciliar fathers, as well as their theological experts, who are named Parity or the Paratus, commenting on this phenomenon that already within a decade or two of the closing session of Vatican II, there were multiple theologians who unfortunately had deputized themselves as interpreters of the council and used Vatican II not as a means to promote what it actually taught, but as a sort of a masquerade, an auspice by which they promote their own personal theological ideologies. And this was rampant for the past 50 years in particular, but in those first several decades of the closing session of Vatican II. Once I understood that and I started reading the proper interpretations first and foremost to the documents themselves, but also the writings of people like Joseph Ratzinger, Henri de Lubac, Hans-Jose von Balthasar, Yves Congar, some of these heavy hitters in the post-conciliar period who, who really fought to reclaim the foundations of the council, I realized that this actually uh, will help us approach a lot of the, the uh, animosity that is currently in the church between the so-called progressivist branch and traditionalist branch, or as I speak to them in my book, paraconciliarism, and traditionalism. Henri de Lubac will call this misinterpretation of Vatican II the para-council or the anti-council. And the fact of the matter is very simple, just to summarize briefly, that the majority of people, what they think Vatican II is and what Vatican II actually is are very different things. What most people assume is Vatican II is actually not Vatican II. It's this para-council, this false narrative constructed by these different theologians and thinkers as opposed to the actual documentation itself. Well, and, you know, I think that's 
perfect for wanting to write this because there is so much uh, misinformation out there. And even today, right? You know, we have enough problems outside the church, let alone this battle going on within. And, you know, I, there was a comment, you know, and I, I didn't, you know, it was translated, you know, the Pope was talking on rigidity again, but there seems to be some uh, within the church that try to make rigidity equal those who love tradition. And, right, right. And there's and there's issues on both sides, right? For for people who, you know, have blown up the mass, for people who say, you know, this isn't the real pope. So you know anybody who's dealt with anything that's, you know, um of any um concern where people disagree, it's usually somewhere in the middle. So how come it just seems like today, and this is since you've written the book, it just seems like it's picked up speed. There's this mm-hmm. attack on tradition, trying to paint them as being rigid. Right. This is a sort of the boogie monster, if you will, of paraconciliarism starting to, to rear its full head. Now, that being said, I want to be most respectful to the Holy Father and sure. to the bishops. So, I, so, you know, I cannot comment as far as the Holy Father's intention or, or what he right. believes or does not believe. But what I can say from my perspective as a theologian as, as a liturgist and as just as a priest and pastoral experience, is that two things have taken place. One is the false paraconciliar thinking, so the fact that Vatican II has been usurped by this fake narrative, and as a result, the traditionalist response, which is not so much reacting to Vatican II as it is this false interpretation of Vatican II, and part of that has left a lot of woundedness and hurt. Now, when people are wounded and hurt, then they react in ways that may not be as prudent or temperate. And so when you have people within these different traditional movements of the church, who might actually have very good points and ideas, which the majority of them do have wonderful points to make, such as the sacredness of the liturgy, the importance of catechesis, etc. But the form in which you present that should always be with humility and obedience. And when that's not the case, what starts happening is that the reputation is being built. And now, by the time it gets to the ears of those in the hierarchy or to the ears of those who are influential in the church, what they're hearing is that there's this sort of renegade sect forming within the church that is against the authentic discernment of the magisterium. And that most certainly is not the case. There might be some individuals in more traditionalistic camps who might think that way, but that's not the majority by any means. Um, I think these are persons that are just really trying to, A, recover from woundedness, that they might have experienced through paraconciliar thoughts or actions, and also be trying to recultivate an authentic uh, Catholic ethos, but maybe are doing so without proper prudence or discernment. Uh, and that's why I think that there needs to be a pastoral initiative, personally, and one that I've taken, a pastoral initiative to reach out to those who consider themselves traditionalist or more traditional to really begin a dialogue and a conversation around Vatican II and its authentic interpretation, which is another one of the purposes of my book. Yeah, and I think you did a very good job doing that. Now, a reminder to anybody listening, read the Vatican II documents, right? Read them, because I think reading them in conjunction with what you've written will be very helpful. And even if you don't read your book, what I do recommend people do, put out by Ave Maria Press, is read what is actually said. Now, I will say, I grew, you know, I came into the church, Novus Ordo Mass, and didn't really know much about the traditional Latin Mass. Have been to a few masses with the traditional Latin Mass, which I find very beautiful. I find very reverent. So I don't know why we can't 
coexist because, you know, it, it, it seems like we're trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? We, most of the saints we've had in our church grew up with a traditional Latin mass, right? And that's how they came. So we can't get rid of it, but I understand what Vatican II was trying to do to be able to, uh, you know, present itself to more and more people in the vernacular and different things like that. Well, again, we have to be careful saying that. So I most certainly see the point that you're coming from. But mm-hmm. even to say that Vatican II wanted to make the liturgy more accessible from the, through the vernacular, that's not a that's a paraconciliar statement. Meaning, yeah, I'm not true. pointing this yeah. out to you to you in any yeah. way. But, right. The, but the Second yeah. Vatican Council, I think that's a common narrative in saying that it wanted the vernacular when it explicitly says that the liturgy must be maintained in Latin and may be for certain pastoral restricted circumstances, utilize the vernacular. Now, that, that's just one example, but the fact of the matter is also, and I think this is important when talking about the progression of the church, that the Trinitine Mass is 500 years old, which is relatively young in the history of Catholicism, um, and as is, as is the Missal of Paul VI. And so as the church progresses throughout history, throughout her 2,000-year history, different liturgical movements take place. Now, with that liturgical movement, it needs to be organic and natural. This is actually where the implementation phase of the sacred liturgy after Vatican II drops the ball. I'm not saying that it dropped the ball from the actual Holy See itself or from Paul VI, but I think the liturgists who were entrusted with this implementation did did not do so prudently because you're absolutely correct. We cannot toss the baby out with the bathwater. And as Pope Benedict will speak frequently, and I encourage you all to read the second volume of Peter Sewald's biography on Pope Benedict. It's magnificent, and it also has his commentaries on Vatican II and its implementation in the post-conciliar period. But in there, he mentions the fact that when you have a hard break from tradition, such as the one that was implemented artificially after Vatican II, then of course you're going to have a rupture. And it was intended to be organically developing from the Trinidine Mass into the Mass of Paul VI. But unfortunately, there's this notion of just, nope, let's cut it out, let's get rid of this, and it wasn't time to allow the church to organically and pastorally form towards a new kind of liturgy, the way that it was done after Trent, for example. Pius V, he did not just say, Trinidine Mass, everything's gone, we're done before this. No, not at all. He allowed the Trinidine Mass to, to develop its own flavor and form in the decades uh, preceding, excuse me, the decades following the Council of Trent. So we did not allow that organic development to take place, and now we're suffering the consequences. Yeah, and I, I appreciate it, right, because I didn't speak when I was talking about uh, the vernacular, because many parts of the Mass are still, you know, Latin is part of it. And I think that's what you bring up in the book, that Latin wasn't just discarded, you know, in terms of, you know, ad orientum, uh, in terms of right. facing the facing the East. And, I mean, it's a combination. You're not it's facing the East and facing the people at times. Um, it really... I think one of the problems, you know, and I've read the Vatican II documents a few times, there is ambiguity that really opens up the door for, you know, the paracouncil to kind of take hold and, and kind of spin their perception of it, right? Do, do you find that, right. there's, there's, that there is that? So anybody on any side could kind of justify what they're saying, and they really take it out of the context. Yeah, this is one of the main critiques hurled against Vatican II's documentation itself. And I think there's some fairness there. Even Ratzker de Lubach and von Balthasar, again, some of these heavy hitters, 
uh, will say that that is the case, that some of the language in the vernacular translations in particular are not translated well or leave a lot of room for ambiguity. That's why I think going back to the original Latin text of Vatican II is very important. But all that to say, when we try to implement something apart from the sensum fidei, so the sense of the faithful, and also apart from the tradition, which Vatican II said is explicitly incorrect. If you look at paragraphs 10 and 11 of Sacro Sanctum Chilium, for example, the, the, uh, the document on the sacred liturgy, the church fathers are very clear in saying that if we're going to make any liturgical reforms, it must be done in light of tradition. It cannot go against the tradition. That is the vision of Vatican II. But there were liturgists and different theologians who, after the council, unfortunately, not least of which was Hans Kuhn, he was the most probably influential paraconciliar theologian in his founding journal, Concilium, which Ratzinger will later leave because he said that it's implementing this false vision of Vatican II. And he will found the Communio journal later on in the 70s and 80s that then has a more orthodox theology. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There is some ambiguity there. Um, just like there is in some other church documents throughout history. But I think it's not so much the ambiguity as it is the persons who were trusted with the implementation did not do so in faithful faithfulness to the tradition. And I say that generally, of course, there are some that were superb, like Carol Bortiwa, um, the future St. John Paul II. But there is also a lot of people who didn't do it properly. And I think people need to be reminded, right, the church wasn't perfect prior to Vatican II, right? There were issues, these kinds of things were kind of burbling up, right? I mean, in the mid-60s, we had the Land of Lakes conferences where, you know, right, the Catholic higher education uh, at the collegiate level, university level kind of went off the rails. You know, all you have to do is read books by somebody like Bella Dodd in the School of Darkness of how she, you know, how she and the communists tried to infiltrate uh, the seminary. So there were problems and this wasn't a switch that just got flipped. It was just, no, they took advantage no, no, no. of this situation and some of the ambiguity and these para councils, you know, to their credit, which I hate to give them credit, did an excellent job of twisting this. Oh, most certainly there were masters disseminating this. And the media of course was, was glove in hand with this whole process, mainly because the, this was the first ever ecumenical council to be covered by mass media. Now, to comment on your point real quickly, which is very keen, you're absolutely correct in saying this is not uncommon. In fact, the Council of Trent, after its closing session, was a disaster <laughs> for the first several decades. Reason being is that's always the case after the closing of a council. If you don't believe me, go back and read in the year 375 AD, the document of Basil of Caesarea commenting on the councils of Nicaea and its implementation. And you will think that you're reading something written by a modern day bishop commenting on Vatican II. It is startling the correlations when he says there's a group of theologians not promoting the true teachings of Nicaea. There are those who want to modernize the church. You know, he's using this kind of language in the fourth century AD. All that to say, this is part of the growing process of the church being an organic body. And I think that's important to keep in mind because it will protect us from, from building up resentment or bitterness towards the paraconciliarist or towards the traditionalist and to have a true spirit of, of contemplation and prayer, recognizing that whenever you're trying to turn the Catholic church, it's not like turning a speedboat, it's turning an aircraft carrier. It takes yeah. miles and miles, you know, and part of that process is, is of course, getting bumps and bruises along the way. So in reality, it usually takes about a century for the full fruits of an ecumenical council to take uh, to take root. And this was the case for Trent in particular, when the real fruits of it don't come about until the 1700s and 1800s with people like Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, and maybe the late 1600s. 
Uh, so it did take time for the real fruits of Council of Trent to, to be blossomed in the world. And it'd be the same thing with Vatican II. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, you know, there's other things, you know, in terms of, you know, religious habits, right? They can be modified and people just scrub them. And, right. you know, people really took things to the extreme. And I think we see the fruits of that, right? Those religious orders, especially female religious orders that continue to wear the habit are doing well at compared yep. to the situation we're at. And those that got rid of them and dressed like anybody out on the street are kind of dying on the vine. So we see that people love the beauty. They love the tradition. They love that symbolism of somebody giving themselves to Christ. And when we kind of wash that away, it's kind of like watering down Christ or watering down the Gospels. It's, it's not really appealing. Right. You're absolutely correct. And that is one of the biggest follies of the Paracouncil, not so much just because of what they did, but what they neglected. Vatican II is one of the most historically patristically and scripturally rich uh, councils in the history of the church, hands down. A matter of fact, in the four major documents alone, there are over 200 patristic references, which is unheard of. It is absolutely sourced in the patristic apostolic tradition of the church. In the medieval theology, it quotes Thomas Aquinas in the Summa. It quotes Gratian, Dominic, Bonaventure, Bernard. It is just latent with all this rich, powerful theology and it encourages that kind of theological milieu. But unfortunately, what has happened is that it's been dumbed down because of this paraconciliar agenda to tr try to seem like Vatican II got rid of the depth and the brilliance and the intellectual integrity of Catholicism, when the complete opposite is the fact. Some of these men who were present at Vatican II, like Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, Henri de Lubac, these are some of the, the landmark thinkers of the 20th century, and they are brilliant, brilliant men of deep holiness, and there's no way they would have voted on and promoted a council that tried to, to disembowel, if you will, the, the real gut of Catholicism, its genius. So, um, so we have to regain that as well. You're absolutely correct. You know, I really appreciated in your book, you talk about coming to a parish that was really struggling, right? It, it had, you know, embraced the parish council's uh, critique or, you know, the spirit of Vatican II, and you were able to turn, you and the pastor were able to turn that ship around, but it took time, right? You spent time teaching, yeah. you spent time explaining. It's not something, you know, people come in mass on Sunday and then the following Sunday, everything's different. You really have right. to lay the groundwork <laughs> to do what you're talking about. Correct. Yeah. I, I always tell people, um, I'm especially since the publication of the book, a lot of uh, pastors have reached out to me, which I'm very humbled by and I thank God for, and asking, Father Blake, how do we make this a reality on the ground level in the parishes? And I always let them know this is at least a three to five year process, at least. What I suggest is the first several years, do nothing but catechesis. Don't change a darn thing. Now, if there's something obviously illicit or liturgically abusive, yes, change that. But other than that, let, let, the, let the ship ride, so to speak. And just observe your first year, and then in year two and three, go ahead and start doing active catechesis, maybe weekly catechism classes. And maybe not a lot of people will come, but I'll tell you who will come, the daily mass people who are the most difficult crowd to convert. <laughs> yeah. If you can get them on board with something, then the rest of it's going to be fine. But besides the daily mass people, a lot of the young adults love that kind of stuff nowadays. So teaching them the doctrines of Vatican II, teaching them the history of the liturgy, the, the history of the patristics, the medieval theologians, uh, Thomas Aquinas, just let the, let the parish stupor, so to speak, in the, in the rich stew of, of Catholic genius. 
Now, after about three years of that intensity, your, your own personal holiness as the pastor, then in year four and five is when what I call the implementation phase, when you could finally start saying, well, you know, let's do once a week at mass. Let's just try chanting the Eucharistic prayer in Latin together. You know, let's do once a month. Let's try a mass orientum, or let's try maybe implementing the extraordinary form. I know that's a little different now with the new mode of proprio, right. so we've got to be respectful of those things. But, um, but that being said, to really help the people fall in love with the tradition and the history of, of the church, and I think you'll be radically surprised at how disposed they are towards and how open they are towards this implementation and this liturgical reform in a really powerful way. So we don't want to make the same mistake that a lot of people made after Vatican II, which was that, like you said, they came in one Sunday, and it was the extraordinary form, Adorantum Latin. They came in the next Sunday, and all the statues were ripped out, the priests were facing the people, and everything was in English, and, and there was no continuity. We're like, okay, how, how did that happen? It wasn't fair. It wasn't pastoral to God's people. So what we really need to do is think, how can our organically and, and naturally help the people of God be disposed towards this fullness of the Christian expression of prayer, which we call the sacred liturgy? Patience is a virtue. So I think, you know, all good things come to those who wait. And I think, I think that's great advice. And it's a great example because you've done it. Now, if there, you know, mm -hmm. I'm sure there's plenty of laity listening to this. If they are interested in, you know, getting back to what Vatican true to tr truly taught, right? Get rid of the K love music. We want sacred music. We want things. They can <laughs> right. respectful. They can respectfully go to the pastor and 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 tell them right why why we right. want this. And I think that would empower the pastor, wouldn't it? Because he sees that there's a hunger for it. Yes, I would say for the laity to approach it from two angles. So one is to always respectfully and humbly, but very honestly express your longings to your pastor. Absolutely. He's your shepherd and he should have an open heart to hear that. I do as, as a pastor of souls, anytime that someone comes to me or any parishioner says, father, I'm thinking about this or concerned about that. I, I have to listen, right? These are my sheep. So that's important. But another side of this as well, Deacon, is for lay persons to take responsibility for the faith in regards to their own personal holiness. So, number one, read the Vatican II documents, cover to cover, understand them, really integrate them into your being. But then number two is realize that we have to play the long game as the Catholic Church. Somewhere along the way, we lost sight of that. We started thinking in decades when we should be thinking in centuries. That's how Catholicism has always survived. So if we really want to win this battle, so to speak, to reclaim Vatican II, it's going to start with family life and marriage. It's going to start with us raising the future priests and bishops of the church from within our households, forming them, shaping them, the future religious abbesses and mother superiors, the future deacons, the, the future catechists and teachers. Uh, St. John Paul II says that the home is the first seminary. It's the first house of formation. And so within our own homes, teaching our children Latin, teaching them the Liturgy of the Hours, teaching them the documents of Vatican II, getting them really engrossed into the tradition of Catholicism, helping them fall in love with the faith. These will be the future priests and leaders of the church in the next 50 to 60 years. And that's what we really need to hang our hat on. And I think we lost that somewhere along the way because we're used to immediate gratification. But for me as a priest, I realized that I'm probably going to die before I see the full vision of Vatican II implemented. And I'm okay with that. But at least I can start planting the seeds so that the generation of priests after me will be able to witness it. Charles Borromeo did not see everything that happened from Trent, but Teresa of Avila did. And, and that's what matters. You know, he, everything that he did was able to make a John of the Cross. It was able to make a Louis de Montfort. 
and I'm working towards that myself now. Well, and right, the church was, you know, built on the foundation of the martyrs in the early church. And it really is all about the future. If we care about the church and care about future generations, then we try making changes in ourselves today. And Vatican II does talk a lot about the laity and the laity's responsibility. I think it kind of goes hand in hand with what you were just talking about. Yes, it does. This is one of the most unique and unfortunately underscored aspects of Vatican II that is just so fantastic. Part of what led to Vatican II, of course, is that it did not fall out of thin air. Most people will accuse it of being sort of a new agey, random spur of the moment council, but it couldn't be any further from the truth. This represents 200 years of theological and archaeological study development, which we call the Ressourcement Movement. It was a a movement rooted in a French word that means resourcement, but there's this rediscovery of the apostolic and patristic church. One of the most revolutionary and beautiful things that came out of that study was the understanding that in the apostolic and patristic church uh, leading up to the medieval period after the fall of Rome in 476 AD in the Western side, that there was this collaboration between the laity and the hierarchy that was quite magnificent, not a disambiguation, meaning that there was most certainly already an infrastructure of hierarchy. It wasn't like the priest and the people were one, priests were set apart for consecration and sacramental ministry, the laity were not, they were set apart for other mission, but there was a spirit of evangelical collaboration between the two that had been somewhat lost through no one's fault of, of their own. It was just because the Catholic Church solidified itself so powerfully in the Middle, the middle Ages and the Trentonian period, but now that we're entering back into a post-Christian civilization, a neo-paganism, if you will, we do need to reinvoke that apostolic and patristic model of Catholicism. And that will be this increased collaboration between the laity and the hierarchy of the church, but also this emphasis that everyone, from the moment of their baptism, is called to sainthood. Sainthood is not reserved for just those who are consecrated and clerical, but rather it is for every single person anointed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is powerful good news that needs to be preached more often, and it's not reflected upon. St. John Paul II did a great job with this in his encyclical on the laity, Christe Fidelis Leici. But other than that, we really haven't heard too much about the universal call to holiness the way that it really should be preached. Um, so I'm hoping that's going to be continued to be flushed out in the years to come. Well, I think that's great. And how can people follow what you're doing, Father? So Facebook and Instagram, just look up Father Blake Britton. You could also find me through the Word on Fire Institute or Word on Fire, Bishop Barron's wonderful ministry. You can follow me through any of those avenues. And on my Facebook and Instagram in particular, I'm always offering reflections, homilies, retreats, book reviews. Respect Life Radio is produced by Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com.